Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. So good to see everybody. I, I am just thrilled you're here. Everybody online, thanks for jumping in as well. And especially if you are what we call being spiritually unresolved, you're not quite sure what you believe. Thanks for having the courage to tune in. You'll hear this often, but one of, um, one of the things we say over and over is we hope that this is a safe place for you to experience a very dangerous message, all right? So it's the message of Jesus, and it can completely upend your life, but this is a safe place to explore his teachings. So before we jump into the text, a couple of thoughts. One, this is what's traditionally known as Holy Week, and today, for 2,000 years, the Christian church has called this Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that, what happens, why it's celebrated. And then Friday night, love to have you join us online or in person for a good Friday service. And then over the weekend, we'll have two Saturday night and three Sunday morning services to celebrate an event that changed history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you can work it into your schedule, I'd love for you to go on Saturday night or the 8 a.m. Sunday morning service with donuts. We've literally found that attendance is doubled when you offer donuts. So donuts at the 8 a.m. service. And um, we'll celebrate together. Bring a friend. I think we're going to have a great time celebrating this event. So our series, we're calling it Threads. And we're looking at, here's, here's the reality. A lot of us, I was just talking to a man in the atrium a second ago. Um, he, he had like deep spiritual roots with his grandparents. His own spiritual development has taken a little while. And he says, it's like I have all these pieces of the puzzle, but it's been hard to fit the pieces together. So our series and threads is we're trying to look at these incredible themes that God weaves throughout the Bible. So we're trying to understand the whole story of God. And so one of these themes, the one we'll look at today, is the, th- the theme of empires and kingdoms. Empires and kingdoms. So what, what does that mean? Well, let's go to point number one. We wanna talk about the establishment of a nation or a kingdom. The establishment of a nation or a kingdom. And this goes to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 12. God has made the earth. There's been a catastrophic event in Genesis chapter three and it's human rebellion against God. And so now entered into our lives has been this thing called the curse. And God says, I'm not done. He, he tries to recreate the world in the flood scenario. And now in Genesis chapter 12, he's gonna focus all his, his attention on one man by the name of Abram. Abram will eventually have his name changed to Abraham. And this, in part, is what he says to Abram in Genesis 12. He says, Abram, you and I are going to experience a covenant. It means this is a relational obligation between the two of us. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to live in a unique way, and here's what I'm going to do. Abram, I am going to make you a great nation, a kingdom. 
And there's all kinds of like funny anecdotes to this because when Abram receives this promise, he's a little bit older in life. He and his wife have never been able to have children. And God keeps telling them, you're going to be a great nation. And he's in his 70s and she's not much younger. And he's like, finally, he's like, God, like, this isn't going to happen. God says, this is going to happen. You got to trust me. So Abraham becomes the father of the Hebrew or the Jewish people. And God is working a nation through them. And they have these distinct aspects as a kingdom that God says this. Actually, in Exodus, he says, I want to make an entire nation of priests to represent me to all the other peoples of the world. And so within this, they have a culture. They have 613 unique laws. They stand out. They have a covenant with God called circumcision. They take a day off every week to reflect on who God is. They refuse. God says, I don't want you to ever try to create a statue of me that you worship. You're going to worship me for my relationship with you, not for an image that you perceive of me. So they have this unique culture. They build, they finally settle. It's, I mean, there's this long sojourn of Abram, you know, eventually he ends up, his ancestors end up in Egypt. They spend 400 years in slavery. They're freed. They finally come to a promised land and they're thinking maybe now, maybe now we'll be our own distinct people group. Because here's what human beings crave. We crave autonomy. We crave safety. We crave prosperity. And those things you often find in a kingdom or an empire. Well, they end up in their promised land. And I wish you could say the story was beautiful after that. But they eventually have a king. And uh, the apex of their human kings is a guy called David. David, he's uh, David and Goliath, that David. And David brought these three things that human beings need. He brought protection and security and prosperity. And it's kind of the apex of their time as a kingdom because just after David, his son Solomon takes over and um, Solomon begins to exploit his people. He puts them in slavery. He builds a tremendous war machine. And then after that, the kingdom goes through a civil war and it's just kind of one story of occupation of a foreign power after another. So if you're a Jewish person in the first century when Jesus came to earth, this is what you did. You looked over your shoulder and you remembered the stories about when you were a kingdom. And when King David was in charge, spiritually they were thriving, financially they were thriving, they were protected, they were safe and they were secure. And so they're, they're longing for that because since David, there's been Persians and Assyrians and Babylonians and Greeks and Romans who've all come in and invaded and occupied your land. God established a kingdom. But the problem with a kingdom is it's led by human beings. And all these human beings failed the people. So one of the things about Palm Sunday that it's a bit of a conundrum is this. We're going to read it in a moment. That Jesus is coming to Jerusalem in the final week of his life. He's coming for the feast of Passover, which Jewish people would all flock. You would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And when Jesus gets just outside of town, the people are absolutely ecstatic. There, there's this, this energy, it's palpable. And they cheer him on and they're waving 
palm branches. So traditionally, palm branches are used on Palm Sunday. Those palm fronds are burnt. You use the ashes from the palm fronds for uh, Ash Wednesday. And they're, they're, they're crying out, save us, save us. We'll talk about that phrase in a moment. But here's, here's what's so confusing about Palm Sunday. They're crying out for Jesus to save them. In a matter of days, they're gonna cry, cry out this, crucify him, crucify him. What switched? What switched? Well, let's read from the book of Mark, the account of Jesus coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's often called the triumphal entry. And um, as we read it, here's some things that it will be really helpful for us to know. In 332 BC, in comes a new invasive force to Israel. And it's a name that even if you're not a history buff, you're going to know this name. It's Alexander the Great. He's this young guy in his 20s. And he reinstitutes the ancient Greek empire and he decides that he can conquer the world. He's going to die at 33 years old, but by the time he dies, he's established a Greek empire that goes from North Africa all the way up into lower parts of Scandinavia and from Spain all the way to India. And a massive force. So here come the Greeks, and now it's their turn to occupy Israel. And here's one problem that Israel has always had. They chafe under a foreign occupation. They just, they've despised it. It makes them feel all those other things, insecurity, a lack of prosperity. They feel fragile. And when Alexander dies, his kingdom, no, no human being could do what Alexander did. So his kingdom is divided up between his generals. And the Greek empire that oversees Israel is called the Seleucid Empire. It's part of the Greek empire, the Seleucids. And here's what the general who oversees the Seleucid Empire says. He says, the people in Palestine or Israel are the most bothersome I have in my entire empire. So much so that this is what he does. He marches with his troops to Jerusalem and they approach the temple, which is the most sacred place for the Hebrew people. This is where the presence of God is. This is where they come to worship. And the general by the name of Antiochus invades Jerusalem, marches to the temple, steals any article that he deems valuable, and then in a complete insult to their culture and to their God, he brings a pig, which is a forbidden animal in Jewish culture. He brings a pig into the altar where they worship their God, Yahweh, and he sacrifices the pig as the ultimate insult. And then he lines up all of the Jewish priests and he force feeds them the flesh of the pig that had just been sacrificed. They called it the moment of desecration where their holiest place had been invaded. What do you do? Well, you look for a hero. And their hero is a guy named Judas. Different Judas than you read in the Passion Week. Judas, he's known as Judas the Maccabee. So we often think of him uh, having a last name of Maccabee, but you know what Maccabee means in Aramaic? It means the hammer. Judas the hammer. And Judas is not okay with the Greeks invading. And he wages this tremendous guerrilla warfare against the Greek people. And then he builds an army. He comes back into Jerusalem. He takes back the temple and he cleanses it. 
It's time of restoration. And for 65 years, the Jewish people are free. And their hero was Judas Maccabee. When Judas comes into Jerusalem, guess how he comes in? He comes in on a war horse. And the people line the road, welcoming Judas, the hammer. And they cry out, Hosanna, save us. He's a hero. So this is what's happening on Palm Sunday. They are reliving what happened under Judas the Maccabee. They are anticipating that Jesus is now going to overthrow the Roman Empire the way that Judas the Hammer overthrew the Greek Empire some 120 years before. Let's read together what happens on Palm Sunday. Book of Mark, chapter 11. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now, if you have a King James Version, it doesn't say colt. It says a three-letter word that we don't talk about in church. So you already know that Jesus is trying, he's trying to communicate something different. So typically what we think is Jesus rode like a young donkey. Judas the Maccabee, the hammer, came in on a war horse. And Jesus is going to ride a Shetland pony in. What is happening? This is not a sign of dominance or power. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted Hosanna. So can you just picture this in your mind? Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. There are people in front of him. There are people behind him. There are people lining the road and they are yelling this word, Hosanna, which we often use as a, uh, a word we associate with worship. You know what this meant in the first century? The literal translation is save now, deliver now. It's a demand, free us from Rome. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father, David. What are they doing? They're oppressed by Rome. They're looking back. We want the days of David. We want autonomy. We want strength. We want power. We want to prosper. Hosanna, save now in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Bethany is about two, hour, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Huge disappointment. Huge disappointment. When they line the roads shouting Hosanna, what are they expecting? They're expecting that God's provided a new hammer. This one isn't Judas. This one is Jesus, Yeshua. And he's going to come in. And what does he do? He comes in. He does not confront Pilate. He doesn't confront any Roman soldiers. He goes to the temple, looks around, sees it's late in the day, and leaves. It's a dashing of their hopes. Jesus will come back the next day. And you know the only act of revolution he makes is he goes directly to the temple where there's an entire system of exploitation that has been um, established where people are charged exorbitant fees to be able to worship God. And the only thing that Jesus revolts about is he comes into the temple and he throws over the money tables. And he says, this house is to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. He revolts against the spiritual climate of the day. 
So there was a nation, but it was a nation that was fragile. It was led by human beings. And there's hopes because of David, because of Judas the hammer, that Jesus is going to get rid of this kingdom that has invaded them. Jesus brings, here's point number two, Jesus brings a new kingdom. He brings an entirely different kingdom. It's not the expectation that people had, but he says frequently, he talks about kingdom, especially in the book of Luke. It's this theme over and over. So what is, what does this new kingdom look like? If it's not a military kingdom, if it's not a political kingdom, if it doesn't even address the power of the oppressive regime of Rome, what is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? Let's just look at four places where Jesus describes the kingdom that he came to bring. Uh, three of them will be from Luke, one from the book of John. Luke 10. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. Okay, we learn a couple of things about the kingdom that Jesus brought. One, it's a kingdom where lives can be healed. Where people whose hopes have been dashed can find restoration and hope. It's, it's a kingdom where what's broken can be fixed. And then he says this about his kingdom. It has come near you. It's not just on the other side of a new general and us raising a bigger army. He says, here's what you need to understand about my kingdom is that when I came to earth, Jesus says, I brought a new kingdom with me. It's in your midst. What else does Jesus say about his kingdom? Luke 13, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? Could you hold that up there for just a moment? If, if a political leader today was asked to describe their kingdom, how would you describe it? How would you describe the United States of America? We're a kingdom. We'd probably talk about our political system. We'd probably talk about our military might. That's how you describe a kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says when he says, how can I describe my kingdom to you? This is what he says. My kingdom is like a mustard seed. Huge disappointment. So mustard seeds were, here's what they were known for in the first century. A very, very small seed. We grind them up and make mustard, right? A very small seed that had the potential to grow into a really big shrub or even a tree. He goes, let me tell you what my kingdom's like. It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. That's what the kingdom of God is like. He goes on. Again, he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. Okay. Jesus, we want freedom from Rome and you're bringing a kingdom that's like a mustard seed and yeast. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying something like this. Both of those examples, they're small, but unbelievable potential. He says, you could take a little bit of the kingdom I brought to planet earth. 
And if it was planted inside of someone, it has the potential to create its own unique environment. It can grow. He says it can grow into a tree where even birds can rest. My kingdom is like yeast, 60 pounds of flour. I'm not much of a baker, but that sounds like a lot of dough, okay? A lot of dough. And Jesus says, my kingdom is like this. You just sprinkle a little yeast, you fold it in. Somehow, this chemical reaction happens where the yeast begins to work in the dough. And what happens? The bread rises. It transforms. It has the potential to grow. It has the potential to have incredible impact. The kingdom of God infiltrates. And so here's part of what Jesus is saying is my kingdom is an internal kingdom, not an external kingdom. See, every kingdom that we know of, we think of, it's like Rome. It has an entire political system. It has a communication system. It has soldiers all over the known world at the time. And they work in concert and they exert force from the outside in. They march into your city and they tell you what to do and how you'll live your life. Jesus says, my kingdom's not like that. It's not about power and dominance and it's not about external things. My kingdom is like a seed. Jesus says, I brought it and I'm here to plant something divine and unique with tremendous potential to grow and change and expand. I'm here to plant that within people because my kingdom works from the inside out, not the outside in. So I came to begin to address the human condition. I came to be able to to put something of heaven into the lives of people who live under this curse that can expand and grow and develop and create an entirely different environment. What else does Jesus say about his kingdom? Once being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, and you know what they're expecting, right? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed. It's not troops marching in. It's not a new emperor on the throne. It's not a new king. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is because the kingdom of God is where? It's in in your midst. Jesus says, when I, I came to bring the kingdom, I came into your world and I brought with me a brand new set of values and something miraculous that can take root inside a dead human being's spirit and begin to expand and develop. It's here in your midst. And then lastly, John. Jesus is actually dialoguing with Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is interviewing him, trying to figure out whether or not they should crucify him. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Where is Jesus' kingdom from? It's from God. It's from heaven. This is why when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, when you pray, this is part of the prayer. He says, would your kingdom come, God? And would your will be done, 
here on earth in my life as it is in heaven? Would your kingdom that's from a different place, it's not centered in Rome, it's not centered in Washington, D.C., it's not centered in Moscow, it's not centered in Beijing. Your kingdom, which is beyond us, you came to bring it to the human life, to the human experience, not as an external force, but as an internal force that takes root miraculously within. All you need is a little bit of his kingdom. It can be sprinkled into the dough of your life. It can be planted into the dirt of your existence. And what happens? It begins to grow and expand and you become a part of a new kingdom. And this leads us to point number three. Okay, so we had the establishment of the original kingdom. We have Jesus saying, I have brought a new kingdom. And then Jesus is gonna create a kingdom. And he says, I have citizens in this new kingdom. Just like the first kingdom of Israel had these 613 laws they live under, Jesus is going to develop an entirely different kingdom with citizens and they'll be unique. In the kingdom of Jesus, there's a different form of community. And the community is based on love for one another. Did you know that the Christian church was the first place in history where the poor and the rich and the slave and the free, where the well-born and the not so well-born, where the different ethnic groups all sat together and there's this, there's this belief that I'm a part of a new kingdom. And so what my genetic DNA says about me is not the most important thing. It's that I am a part of a new kingdom. And then human beings began to sit down and look at people who are really different than they were and not value people according to social status or wealth or achievement. But they just said, you are valuable simply because you're a human being. And I choose to believe this. If you're part of the kingdom, you and I have the same dad. We're family. And so Jesus introduces this love one another, agape in the Greek language, this sacrificial committed love, this kingdom. Next slide, please. It's a different type of humanity. It's governed by different principles. So citizens of Jesus' kingdom, in a normal kingdom, what do we look for? We look for power. We look for significance. We look for security. In the kingdom that Jesus establishes, he says, I'm going to make you new types of human beings where those aren't your major pursuits, but what your pursuits are is like radical forgiveness. Peace, regardless of what is happening in your world. Sacrificial love. Trust, rather than pursuing things that make you secure. In my kingdom, this new type of human is simply going to trust that their father will care for them and live off of this thing you can't put a finger on called faith. This is the new kingdom. These are what citizens of the new kingdom look like. The goal in the kingdom isn't happiness or security. And in the new kingdom, we are not crying out, save us from political oppression. You know what the new kingdom cries out? Save us from ourselves. Save us from our self-destruction and from our, 
our addictions that keep us bound up. Save us from our profound insecurities. Jesus, would you save us from our sin? Because there is an enemy. There's an enemy that is far worse than Rome. There's an occupying force that has taken up residence within the human heart and it is called sin. It's called rebellion against God. So in this new kingdom, here's what people cry out. God, save us from us. Save us from our arrogance. We need salvation, not from an empire. We need salvation from sin. This is the new kingdom that Jesus is developing. And there's this idea of expansion, right? With the, with the mustard seed, with the yeast. Jesus' last conversation with his kingdom citizens in person, he's about to ascend into heaven and he looks at his citizens, his disciples, his believers, and he says this, here's what I want you to do. He doesn't talk about building churches. He doesn't talk about building empires. He doesn't talk about conquering nations. He says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to do the things that I did because as a citizen of this new kingdom, you have authority. You are sons and daughters of the king, of King Jesus. And I want you to take the things that I've done. I want you to confront demonic powers that exist in this world today and I want you to cut them. I want you to bring love and peace and forgiveness. I want you to find people who think that God hates them and they can never be forgiven and they'll always live in sin and shame. He says, I want you to tell them that what Jesus did on the cross can forgive them and make them new. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's the new kingdom citizen. I wanna end with one more verse where this idea of kingdom comes back. This is written by the writer of Hebrews. We're not always exactly sure who wrote Hebrews. It's a very unique book. But he writes it later. This is probably 43 to 46 years after Jesus walked the earth. He's writing to a group of believers who are still in the Roman Empire. And they're a little bit confused at times about the kingdom. <laughs> like, are we looking for political victories and military victories? And this is what the writer of Hebrews says to these first century believers. Therefore... Since we are receiving, please notice this, are receiving. Jesus is still depositing the kingdom in your life and in my life. He is still planting seeds the size of a mustard seed. And he is still sprinkling the yeast of the kingdom into people's lives. I need to receive it every day. We're receiving a kingdom cannot be shaken. Every kingdom that has ever existed has eventually been shaken. Egypt, Greece, Rome, Persia. We live in a part of a kingdom today. As much as I might love my country, I know that no kingdom lasts forever. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says. The kingdom that you are receiving from God, it can't be shaken. It can't be overcome and it cannot be overwhelmed. Since you are receiving that kingdom, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence 
and awe. It's this picture of when I realized what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to defeat Rome or whoever it might be. He came to deposit the kingdom within human beings to plant a seed that's miraculous in his nature. This is you're part of an unshakable kingdom so you can now reverence and honor and worship God with this profound sense of awe that you and I are included in this new kingdom. One that will never be shaken. One that it's expanding and it brings life and it brings hope to the world around us. That is the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.